Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. If you're just joining with us, uh, we the elders have been working our way through uh, this book here in 1 Timothy. And we're just about ready to wrap it up. I think we might have... uh, maybe one, if not uh, two more messages here out of First uh, Timothy. But uh, we're going to be looking specifically here out of uh, verse number uh, 11, and uh, I'm going to read, uh, we're going to read together here uh, verses 11 all the way through verse number 16, because I think that kind of sets the context but we're only going to focus in here this morning on verses uh, 11 and 12. And last month, if you can remember, uh, the other, our other elder, uh, Jeff, he spoke on that section here about money and about how uh, we need to have the right attitude towards money is what uh, Paul was uh, teaching uh, Timothy. And if you can remember, this letter towards, uh, to Timothy was basically... Paul had been pouring his life. He's replicating himself in Timothy uh, because Timothy was now going to pick up where Paul had left off. And uh, Paul sent him to a lot of these churches that uh, Paul had established. And here when he wrote uh, 1 Timothy, Timothy was now at the church at Ephesus. And he gave uh, Timothy a lot of practical things. All right, Timothy, this is what you need to do now at the church. You need to bring some... uh, um, uh, some structure to the church. This is how you're going to do it. He gives them all those things about how to establish uh, eldership in the church, how to establish deacons, uh, the, the things that they're supposed to be doing, all of these practical instructions. And so now he's wrapping all these things up here uh, in this uh, last chapter with some really helpful uh, things. And one aspect that you're going to see as we, as we work our way through uh, verses 11 and 12 here is talking about the Christian life, how to live the Christian life. That seems to be a huge mystery uh, to most people. And I, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we think living the Christian life is a checklist, meaning as long as I go to church, check. As long as I'm reading my Bible, check. As long as I'm praying, check. Uh, then I got all these things figured out, and I know how to live the Christian life. But what's interesting here is that Paul, the instructions that Paul gives Timothy about living the Christian life, about persevering, you'll, you'll see that come out here uh, in the text, persevering uh, is, is not so much a checklist, but it's, it's more of a determination. You're going to determine to do this. You're going to strive to do this. And, I, and I'll say, living the Christian life is not easy. It's hard. It's very difficult. Um, that's why Jesus tells us, right, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, that's why he tells us uh, that, you know, living the Christian life, you're, you, there's going to be hardships and difficulties that are going to come from that. And if you think of the Christian life as a race, and in fact, Paul even talks about the Christian life as being a race, uh, it's not a hundred-yard dash. It's a marathon. It's hard. It's grueling. It's, it's difficult. 
And Paul's going to give Timothy some things here about living the Christian life. Now, in this passage, Paul has eternity in his perspective. He's looking ahead towards Christ coming back. He's, he's focusing on when Jesus returns, are we going to persevere to the very end? Are we going to stay determined to live for Christ until the very end uh, when Christ returns? And so Jesus Christ is returning, and we need to make sure that we are going to persevere to the end. And how are we going to do this? Well, Paul's going to give Timothy four things, how to persevere out of uh, verses 11 through 12. Now, think about some things about why Paul wrote what he wrote here to Timothy. Um, you got to remember, Timothy, I believe, was a young man when he went to this church there at Ephesus, and I think Timothy was catching a lot of flack. I think he showed up at this church at Ephesus, and there was false teachers in this church at Ephesus, is what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy uh, 5 and 6. He, he, he talks about a lot of these false teachers who are in it for the money. You know, they're in it for gain and profit. And Timothy had to rebuke these guys. He had to rebuke their false teaching. He had to rebuke what they were saying. And I believe Timothy was a very timid guy. And so I think these words that Paul gives Timothy are very encouraging. It's helpful. Think of it, if you will, like it's halftime in the football game. You're down by six. The coach comes in the, in the room, halftime. All right, guys, we can do this. We can do it. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be hard. We can do it. We can do it. I know we can do it. All right, Frank, you, don't let that guy get past you anymore. You got to stick in there. You got to stick it out, right? I believe this is the pep talk that Paul is having with Timothy. And he's giving him these things to encourage him and help him. And I believe that we can apply these things to our life as well because, like I said, living the Christian life is hard, but I believe if we take these uh, verses to heart, I think we can, uh, it can bring encouragement and help to us as well as we seek to live for Christ, uh, knowing that he's returning. And so he gives Timothy four commands in these verses 11, 12 that are pillars really of perseverance, and uh, here they are. Pursue, fight, or flee, pursue, fight, and take hold. And so this is what I'd like for you to take away with you uh, this morning. Persevere till the end by following God's instructions. Persevere till the end by following God's instructions. So let's read our text here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 11 through 16, but we're only going to focus in on verses 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, here it is, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality 
who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So let's look at the first thing here. If we are going to persevere, there's going to have to be a change in not only our thinking, but in our living as well. So first of all, I want you to take notice here, flee worldly thinking and living. If we are going to persevere till Christ returns, we're going to have to flee worldly thinking and living. Take notice of this contrast that Paul gives here, okay? Verse number 10, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 11, here's the contrast. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Some have wandered away from the faith. There were some believers in this church at Ephesus that had entertained worldly thinking by these false teachers and fallen into the wrong way of living. And they had, they had wandered away from the faith. Not the fact that they lost their salvation, okay? But they wandered away from what is true. They wandered away from what is biblical. They wandered away from godly living, the faith. They wandered away from that, okay? And Paul says, if we want to persevere to the end, till Christ returns, he says, we're going to have to flee worldly thinking and this worldly type of living. You have to flee from it. You have to run away from it. Don't run towards it. Run away from it. And so Timothy, Paul is trying to help Timothy to see this. And Timothy, I want you to know the danger of this type of thinking and living. And if we're going to persevere, then we are going to have to run in the opposite direction. He says, flee these things. Now notice the title Paul gives to Timothy here. Oh, man of God. <laughs> you know, it, previous uh, church that we were at, they were pretty legalistic in a lot of things. And one of the things is they, uh, they referred to the pastor there as the man of God. You know, like, oh, he's the man of God. He's the man of God. You know, kind of like this, you know, type thing. Uh, but in reality, all of us can be men and women of God. If we are, if we are following after Christ, and if we are persevering and we are fleeing this worldly thinking and worldly living, we should be men and women of God. And so look what he says here. He says, O oh man of God, flee these things. We can be people who desire to follow God's teachings. And being a man or woman of God doesn't happen automatically. You know that? Because notice the contrast here again, verse number 10. Some have wandered away from the faith, but he says, you, Timothy, he says, flee these things. He says, flee them. So it's not something that happens automatically. It's not, it's not something that we just like, oh, okay, now I'm going to all of a sudden become a man or woman of God. To be a man or woman of God, you must resolve to stand against the tide. You must flee worldliness. Now, notice what Paul says here to Timothy. But you, O man of God. Is that a little odd? Why didn't he say, but you, O man of God, stand firm? Right? He, he tells him to flee. Here he is, 
flee, Timothy. Why didn't he say, stand firm? But instead he tells him to flee. Real men don't flee, do they? Can you imagine a football coach telling his team, listen team, the men on the other team are big and tough, and when they come at you, I want you to turn tail and flee. You don't win by fleeing, do you? But here, Paul tells Timothy to flee these things. Paul knew that there are times when the way to victory is to flee, not to fight. We're commanded to flee immorality in 1 Corinthians 6.18. We're commanded to flee idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10.14. We're commanded to flee youthful lust in 2 Timothy 2.22. And here to flee the love of money and false doctrine. But James 4.7 tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. So we need to know when there's a time to stand and then when there's a time to flee. And here Paul is telling Timothy to flee uh, these things. All the commands to flee can be summed up by saying flee worldliness. What is worldliness? Have you ever thought about that? What is it? What is worldliness? Can you actually put a finger on it and say this is what worldliness is? Is it watching certain things, dressing a certain way? listening to certain kinds of music. Like I said, previous church that we were at, I was told uh, while we were there, I was told that I was being worldly uh, because I was okay with using drums and worship, uh, using other translations of the Bible, um, just goofy stuff like that, you know. Um, but is that really what worldliness is? I mean, is worldliness me not showing up in a suit and tie to, to speak? Is the, am I being worldly because I'm not doing that? No, okay. The Apostle John defines worldliness in this way. In 1 John 2.16, he says, For as the saying it is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's what worldliness is. It's anything that you are desiring that really centers around the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh refers to the strong desires to gratify ourselves by living, by feelings rather than by obedience to God. The lust of the eyes refers to the desire to increase pleasure by acquiring things and outward status rather than by developing godly character. The boastful pride of life refers to self-centered living that focuses on this life in disregard to God and eternity. Satan used these three avenues to tempt Eve. We see that in Genesis 3, 6. Scripture says that when she saw that the tree was good for food, it would satisfy the desires of her taste. It was appealing then to the lust of the flesh. Also, it was a delight to her eyes, it says. It looked good outwardly. It was an appeal to the lust of the eyes. And the tree was desirable to make one wise. She wouldn't need to rely on God's wisdom anymore. Instead, she had more uh, on her own because Satan tricked her, right? He deceived her and says, oh, you'll be like God, right? You'll know these things. And so it appealed to the boastful pride of life. Each of these temptations is a differently veiled form of exalting self. 
the lust of the flesh to gratify self, the lust of the eyes to enhance self, both in one's own eyes and in the eyes of others, and the boastful pride of life to increase reliance on self and decrease the need to depend totally on God. The false teachers whose doctrine and way of life Timothy was to flee was into self. They puffed up, they were puffed up with pride is what, uh, Timothy, what Paul writes here in verse number four. It says, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. They didn't submit to subscripture, but rather used it to promote their own selfish views, but without holding to its truth, they were into religion for personal gain. They were into religion for profit. It was just all about the money. It's just what they could extort from people. And this still goes on today in many churches. There's uh, many churches today that are more teaching on self than Christ. A majority of sermons taught today in churches are nothing more than self-esteem, feel-good, pop psychology teachings with a little scripture, you know, sprinkled here and there uh, with it. In John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, there's two chapters that uh, he writes that are really good to address, I believe, this whole self-esteem garbage that is taught many churches today. The chapters are titled, The Sum of the Christian Life, The Denial of Ourselves, and the second chapter is Bearing the Cross, a Part of Self-Denial. Now, let me just quote him briefly uh, concerning this whole self-esteem type stuff. There is no other remedy than to tear out from our inward parts this most deadly pestilence of love of strife and love of self, even as it is plucked out by scriptural teaching. Let us then unremittingly examining our faults call ourselves back to humility. And so whenever a teaching appeals to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life, We need to take off as fast as we can in the opposite direction. That's why Paul tells Timothy, flee this type of thinking. Flee this type of living. And if you're going to persevere till the end, till Christ returns, don't get entrapped by that kind of living and that kind of thinking. Right? Flee it. Run away as fast as you can uh, from that kind of stuff. So here's the second thing. If we're going to Uh, persevere till Christ returns. Secondly, pursue godly living. So we aren't just to run from worldliness, but notice what he says here. We are now to pursue certain things. These are certain godly characteristics. Paul gives us these six character qualities that define godly living. Now, maybe you've pondered this question. Well, how am I actually supposed to live the Christian life? I mean, what is the formula? What is it? How am I going to do this? Well, I believe this passage here, and there's other passages throughout Scripture that tell us certain things, what we should be doing in order to be living for Christ. So let's allow Scripture to speak to this question here, okay, and get a good grasp on how to pursue godly living. Now, take note of that word pursue there. You see it? The word means to eagerly go after something. To eagerly go after it. It implies effort, diligence, and determination. In other words, you won't accidentally attain these qualities just by coming to a church gathering. It doesn't happen. You have to be pursuing after it. You have to be 
in pursuit, striving for these things, right? It just doesn't happen. You've got to go after them deliberately over the long haul. In other words, you have to make a conscious, daily, and deliberate effort to go after these things that Paul lists here. Now, let's look at each one of these uh, here briefly. Number one, pursue righteousness. Here, the word refers to conformity to the standards of God's word. When we trust in Christ as Savior, God declares us righteous. And in our standing before him, based upon the atoning sacrifice of his son, it's the whole idea that his righteousness has been imputed to our bankrupt, bankrupt account, basically. Okay, We have no righteousness on our own. And so when we trust Christ as our Savior, his righteousness is imputed into our account. It's Christ's righteousness, basically, that we have. And so it's this judicial action in which God puts our sin on Christ and he credits Christ's righteousness to our account. And this is called justification. And so as we have been justified, as what uh, Romans 3 and 4 teach us, the Christian then must pursue a life of righteousness. Listen to what 1 John 3, uh, 7 and verse number 10 says. He writes, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, this is real important to take note of because this is self-examination, right? Am I practicing righteousness? I'm not saying you're perfect. Are you practicing righteousness? Are you living a life that is conformed, following after the pattern of the Word of God? Are you living that way? Or is it the opposite? If it's the opposite, then you need to do self-examination and really see where you stand with God. Are you a believer in Christ or are you not a believer in Christ? Okay. So if we're going to pursue godly living, the first thing we must do is we must pursue after righteousness. We must pursue the standard that God has set up in his word. And we need to live that way. And so this pursuit of Christ, this pursuit of righteousness is so important. And in the pursuit of godliness, you'll find that you will get knocked down by sin. It's going to happen. But the true Christian will get back up and continue and continue and continue and continue. Secondly, pursue godliness. The, world is, the word is closely related to righteousness and it has the nuance of reverence or awe in God's presence. A godly person lives with an awareness of God's holy presence. And so he fears God and flees from sin. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, Paul tells us that godliness only comes through discipline. We must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. You won't roll out of bed some morning and find that you are somehow magically attained it overnight. It's not going to happen. You have to pursue after it. You won't get it by going to a spiritual conference or having some emotional experience. You know, I went to something and, oh, I got a spiritual high, you know. No, it, 
You have to pursue after it, okay? It takes work. It takes discipline. And so if we're going to persevere, uh, we have to pursue after godliness. You have to diligently discipline yourself to pursue godliness. Thirdly, look what he says here, pursue faith. This refers to the trust in God that consciously relies on him in every situation of life. Listen to what Hebrews 11 uh, tells us what faith is. Hebrews 11 is kind of known by, known by the being as the great faith chapter, right? Hebrews 11, 1, it, it gives us what a faith is. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we're supposed to be pursuing after this. The assurance of things not seen, right? This, this conviction. It not only tells us what faith is, but listen how Hebrews 11, 3, 13 through 16 shows the faith of men and women who believed in God. Listen to what he says here. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And so these men and women of faith believed the promises of God and lived in light of them, even in the face of not receiving what is promised, because they trusted that God would fulfill his sure word in heaven. And this is how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to, the Bible tells us that the just shall live by faith. Again, you don't need to pursue faith, you know, uh, you don't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden you have faith, right? It's something that, that you have to constantly be, be striving and, and running after towards. Uh, it's like the guy that, you know, the, uh, the guy that's like 98 pounds, you know, some weakling, and he goes to bed, and then next morning he wakes up and he looks like Captain America. It doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen. There, there has to be a pursuing of this. This is how we're called to live. Look at this next one, pursue love. Pursue love. We often have the mistaken notion that love just flows effortlessly, but here it tells us that we're supposed to pursue it. If we have to work at it, it must not be love. But why would the Bible so often command us to love one another if it didn't require diligent effort to do so? In our day of self-focused Christianity, we're being told that we must learn to love ourselves before we can love God and others. But the Bible tells us over and over that we all love ourselves quite well, doesn't it? It says, no man hated his flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. So we all love ourselves way too much, actually. And I don't think there's any lack of loving ourselves. We are given a command to love our neighbor, not ourselves. Again, in John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, he writes this concerning this self-love nonsense. And obviously, since men were born in such a state that they are all too much inclined to self-love and, and however much they deviate from truth, 
they still keep self-love. There was no need of a law that would increase or rather enkindle this already excessive love. Hence, it is very clear that we keep the commandments not by loving ourselves, but by loving God and neighbor, that he lives the best and holiest life who lives and strives for himself as little as he can. And that no one lives in a worse or more evil manner than he who lives and strives for himself alone and thinks about and seeks only his own advantage. Fifthly, notice what else we're supposed to be pursuing here. It says we're supposed to pursue steadfastness. The word here means to persevere, which means bearing up under difficult circumstances. We only can pursue steadfastness by daily trusting in God as we hope in the promise of his coming and in the blessings we will enjoy throughout eternity with him. Notice the last one here that we're supposed to pursue, gentleness. This word doesn't mean meekness in a sense of weakness. Timid Timothy wouldn't need to pursue that quality since he seemed to have plenty of it, right? Remember he tells him, he says, let no man despise your youth. Right? I mean, here's Timothy's in this church, false teachers are abounding, and he's supposed to rebuke them. And he's saying, Timothy, look, you, you have this, but I want you to pursue after gentleness. This word gentleness rather means strength under control. Alexander the Great, who was the king of the ancient Greek Macedonia in 336 BC, had a horse. Does anybody know the name of the horse that he had? We don't have any history buffs in here. <laughs> Bucephalus was the horse's name, okay? And Bucephalus, the, the name meant ox head, okay? This horse was known to be so, like, against everything. Like, it was a very hard horse to break. It, it, it just... Didn't want anybody, but Alexander the Great broke this horse, and this horse was very strong and very mighty, and that's why he named it Bucephalus. And so the idea here, Paul is saying, is that we need to pursue after gentleness. Yes, there's strength, but it's under control. And Alexander the Great broke that horse as mighty and strong as that horse was known to be as he was brought under control. And so this is the idea here that Paul is telling Timothy here, strength under control. As the very next word shows how to persevere, uh, he'll tell us that we need to fight. So yes, there's strength, it's under control, and we need to fight the good fight of faith as we'll see here uh, next. So to persevere, the man of God must flee worldliness, pursue godliness, as expressed in these six qualities, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Here's the third thing. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Notice the words, the faith here. It literally means the Christian faith as revealed in the truth of God's word. This is what we've been given. This is what we're supposed to fight for. Okay? We must fight for sound doctrine, for sound teaching. As we've seen, sound doctrine is essential for sound Christian living. If you have the wrong kind of doctrine, you're going to have the wrong type of living. So if you have sound doctrine, you're going to have sound living. So it's very important to fight for this. And so Satan attacks sound doctrine, often with subtle airs and truth out of balance, 
So the Christian must, in the words of Jude 3, he says, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Have you ever noticed, even in our culture, you know, even if you find stuff, maybe it might be some form of media, maybe something that you watch or listen to or read, whatever it may be, and it's Christian, and as you're reading it, there's some little subtle things that kind of pop up here and there that go contrary to sound biblical teaching. What is that? These are little things that Satan uses to try to destroy what sound biblical teaching is. Okay, and so we got to fight for the faith. Throughout Scripture, you see this fighting for the faith, always correcting false and heretical teaching. That's what Paul is doing here in 1 Timothy. And this battle still continues on today. It's, it's constant. It's, it's always going on and on and on. In every age, there are those who desire to promote unity and love and tolerance. They say, oh, come on, it's not that big of a deal. It's not, oh, come on, not really that big of a deal to say any. Why do we got to say something? But in reality, you got to say something, right? You're driving off a cliff. You're heading towards destruction. You got to say something. And so it's important to fight the good fight of faith. And so to persevere, we must flee worldliness, pursue godliness, and fight the good fight of faith. Here's the last one. Take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. Now, this is interesting. Is Paul telling Timothy to be saved? Take hold on eternal life. You may be thinking, I thought Timothy already had eternal life. Why does Paul tell him to take hold of it? This is why keeping things in their context and comparing Scripture to Scripture is so important. Because sometimes we see these phrases like this, take hold on eternal life, or uh, as what he says earlier, he says some of them uh, have wandered away from the faith, where he says some of them have swerved and made shipwreck of their faith, all this kind of stuff. You see those things and you're like, oh, that means that they lost their salvation. No, okay? We're keeping things in the context. What is he talking about here, right? He says, take hold on eternal life, Timothy. So what does this mean? Well, according to the Lord Jesus, all who simply believe in him have everlasting life. He said, he who believes in me has everlasting life. We see that Timothy already possessed eternal life. Notice a couple things that are linked with this eternal life that Paul makes mention of here in this passage here. He says, take hold of the eternal life that what? which you were called, past. God calls us to salvation. He calls us to this eternal life. There was a time in my life that I remember that I was without Christ, and Christ called me to salvation. You need to repent. Trust me for Savior, for salvation. There's a calling of repentance. This happened in uh, Timothy's life. He says, you were called. Salvation never begins with man, but with God. And we were all dead in our transgressions and our sins, unable to call on God because we're dead in our sins, right? That's what Ephesians 2 uh, tells us. And so if you have eternal life today, it's not because you first decided to call upon God, but because God, being rich in his mercy, first called you and imparted this eternal life to you. 
He gave you eternal life, right? It's a gift. Secondly, notice what he says here. He says, we respond to God's call in this imparting a life to us by faith. And faith is a matter of the heart, but it's expressed outwardly through a public confession. Because notice what he says. He says, you, this eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so, Timothy, God called you to salvation. You responded to the call. And then he says here that you made good on that confession in the presence of many witnesses. What is that? Baptism, anybody? <laughs> right? <laughs> so here he is. He says, hey, I've received Christ. I'm going to follow Christ in the, public, in, the, in the profession of many witnesses, and I'm going to be baptized. And so he reminds him of this calling. So Timothy already had eternal life. So he's not talking about getting saved. He's not talking, he's not being evangelistic here. Eternal life is a present possession. You already own it. You already have it. Eternal life doesn't begin after you die. Eternal life began when you received Christ as your Savior, right? You already have it. But notice what he says here. He says, not only we have it, but we are to told to take hold of it. Now, how are we to take hold of eternal life? Well, this exhortation about taking hold of eternal life is right in the context. Remember the, this previous verse, verse number 12 here? What did he say? Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Those two are linked. Fighting the good fight of faith and taking hold on eternal life are right in the same context. It's a continual thought that he's bringing here. So what is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about persevering in our service to Christ. Now, so let's connect some thoughts here that Paul talks about in these verses. Overall, in verses 10 through 19, there is this anticipation for the coming of our Lord Jesus. Paul is looking towards eternity, right? Christ is coming. He says, Timothy, I want you to persevere till Christ comes. You are to pursue after these things. This is how you're supposed to live. Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Take hold on eternal life. And he's evaluating everything in light of eternity. Verse 14, he says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. What is Paul talking about? Rewards. It all has to deal with rewards. When Christ returns, what's going to happen? There's going to be a judgment. Judgment is coming. Yes, there is judgment for those that do not know Christ. But for those of us that do know Christ, we will stand before Christ and be judged for what we did in this life, whether good or bad. Remember wood, hay, stubble, gold, precious stone, silver? They're all going to be tried in the fire. If, if it survives, right, there will be a reward. If it burns up, you will suffer what? Loss. So he has, he has rewards in view here. There's eternity, and he's, he's linking this together. Take hold on eternal life, Timothy. You already possess eternal life, but take hold of it, Right? Because eternity is coming. 
And so Paul tells Timothy to fight this good fight of faith. Several years after writing this to Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7. Listen to this, and I find this very interesting. At the end of his own life, this is what Paul says. I have fought the good fight. And as a result, Paul says this in verse 8. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. What day? The day of judgment, right? And he says, and not only me, and not only me only, but also to all who love his appearing. So this reward concept of what we will gain after this age is over is being clearly taught by Paul. And he's saying, hey, judgment's coming. There's going to be rewards. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold on eternal life, Timothy. And so this day, this Christian's day of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, And it's also instructive to note that those who fight the good fight of faith and love Jesus appearing will receive the crown of righteousness. Crowns symbolize rulership and authority. There is going to be places in the new Jerusalem of authority that are going to be given to some and some won't have it. So what are you going to have in eternity? What are you going to have? Are you going to have nothing Or are you going to have something? This will be all for all eternity. What you do here and now will affect you for all of eternity. This is why Paul is being so, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Take hold on eternal life. Reach for, do you ever ever see those uh, those pictures of those guys running the the race? And the, the finish line is up there. And usually there's that one guy, he's like this, right? He's stretching forward. He's trying to reach. He's trying to grab. He's trying to win the prize, right? We see this all throughout scripture that this whole idea that only one is going to win the prize, right? Strive. I think we got this really messed up view of what eternity really is. Like we think that it's sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp in a nightgown, That's not eternity. What is eternity? If you look in Revelation, right? When the new Jerusalem comes down, the new creation of the world, right? The old world has passed away. It's all destroyed, right? God melts the elements with the fervent heat. It's all gone. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem comes down from the city, right? Here it comes, prepared. Does anybody know how big new Jerusalem is? It's a giant cube about the size of the United States. Width, length, height, giant cube. What are you going to be doing in New Jerusalem? Bring, 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 bring. Oh, hello, Moses. So tell me again, how did you pass over the Red Sea? Dring, dring, dring. No. You are going to be serving Christ. There's going to be places of honor. There's going to be places of people that are going to rule. And what you do here and now will affect you for all of eternity. Are you laying up treasure in heaven? Are you taking hold of that eternal life as what... Paul is saying. 
Here's an interesting thing. I just want to wrap this up here with this thought. Did you know in New Jerusalem, you have as large as it is, big as it is, the walls are, I believe, some 200-something feet thick. The walls that surround Jerusalem are 200 feet thick. And there's gates on the city. Why are there walls and why are there gates on the city in New Jerusalem? I thought everything's perfect. Why do we have walls and why do we have gates? Keep things out, right? To protect things inside. Wait a minute, I thought all the, all the bad stuff is all gone, right? I mean, it's all gone, right? We're in New Jerusalem, it's, everything's perfect. Why are there walls and why are there gates? Could it possibly be that there are going to be places of honor, that people are going to be closer to Christ because of what they invested here and now for eternity than those that didn't? It could be that there are going to be people outside of the city that won't have places of honor. What you do here and now will affect you for all of eternity. Are you taking hold of eternal life? Are you reaching towards the goal? Are you reaching towards that prize? Are you pursuing after? Are you going to persevere till Christ returns? Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.